Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's been 30 years since the landmark self-management book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, was published. It's been called the most influential business book of the 20th century, and the principles it espouses have become embedded in our culture. Seven Habits had a big impact on me personally. This is the first time I read over 20 years ago as a high schooler. A 30th anniversary edition of the book is out with new insights from the late Stephen Covey's children, and today it's my pleasure to speak to one of them, Stephen M. R. Covey. Stephen had a big role in the launch of the first edition of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People as well as his father's company, Franklin Covey, and is himself the author of the book, The Speed of Trust. Today on the show, Steve and I discuss why the seven habits of highly effective people has had such staying power and why it's just as relevant today as it was 30 years ago. We then walk through the seven habits, exploring how each has lived individually, as well as worked together to create a flourishing life. If you've never read The Seven Habits, this episode is a great introduction. And if you read it before, this is a succinct refresher on a set of principles worth building your life around. After the show's over, check out your show notes at awim.is slash seven habits. Stephen joins you now via clearcast.io. Stephen and Mark Covey, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. It's great to be with you. Excited to be here. So you are one of the sons of the late Stephen Covey and the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, other books. The Seven Habits is coming out with a 30th anniversary edition this May. And so I brought you on the show so we can talk about that. But before we do, let's talk about your involvement with your dad's work and the organization Franklin Covey. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, I've been involved with the Franklin Covey organization and its predecessors. It was called at the time Covey Leadership Center. And, you know, really almost from the very beginning, it was clear back in 1989 when I joined the company out of uh, Harvard Business School and I was deciding kind of what to do. Do I, I had an opportunity on Wall Street, investment banking, I had an opportunity in real estate development. And then I had an opportunity to join up with my father who had a small, you know, consulting leadership development company. And I, but I knew my father had a great book coming out called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It had yet to come out. It was about to. And so kind of against the advice of everyone around me that said, you know, go go for Wall Street or go for this real estate development. You know, those are reputable jobs. I, I went with my father's company at the time, the Covey Leadership Center, now Franklin Covey, because I really knew what was in store for people, that the seven habits of highly effective people was about to come out as a book and that this book could have a profound impact on people. And, and so I joined right at the very outset and, uh, and helped, you know, helped uh, my father build the organization and become really one of the largest leadership development companies in the world and using seven habits as the foundation for doing that. So let's. So as I said, we, you get, there's a 30th anniversary edition of the Seven Habits coming out this May. I mean, why do you think this book has had such staying power after 30 years? I mean, it's sold 40 million copies even today on Amazon. It's usually on the top 10 on the Amazon charts, which is like the top 10 books sold. What's going on? What do you think is? Why does this book resonate with so many people for so long? It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> that after all this time, it's still up there in the top 10 and, or, or, you know, in, in the top sellers, whether top 10 or whatever. But I think it's because the seven habits has really built on enduring and timeless principles that apply everywhere and in all circumstances and really in all kinds of different times and places. And, and so it's based upon principles, not practices. 
It takes an inside out approach, meaning that we all look in the mirror and we start with ourselves versus kind of an outside in approach where you look at your circumstances or everybody else and kind of blame. This is inside out and you take responsibility based upon principles. And, and so, and then also I think my father had a real gift of making this accessible to people, practical, tangible, you know, be proactive is one of the habits and so practical and tangible begin with the end in mind and, and so basic and so foundational. And yet suddenly he's making it become more accessible. And that was really a gift my father had is to, to take ideas that kind of had always been out there. I mean, these are not his ideas per se. You know, he doesn't claim to own the principles. No one owns the principles. They're universal. They belong to everyone. But my father had a gift of making the principles accessible and actionable and practical so people could implement them in their lives. You know, begin with the end in mind, his habit too. And, you know, and so he taught people how to create a personal mission statement, just like you would, you know, a company might have an organizational mission statement. What about a personal mission statement? What about a family mission statement as a way of beginning with the end in mind? And, you know, and, and really prioritizing and, 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 and identifying the most important roles in your life and the, and then the goals that follow them in those and, and really implementing this. And, and each of the seven habits was based upon a principle but then made accessible through, you know, through language and through applications that made this just so useful to people. So I think that's the biggest reason is that it's based upon principles that are timeless. It's an inside out approach, meaning that everyone can start with themselves and work on this and it's accessible, it's actionable, it's practical and useful for people. And because of that, I say, rather than being 30 years old, I think the seven habits is 30 years young and going. Yeah, and that's one of the things when I first read The Seven Habits a long time ago, that focus on principles was what stood out to me. And then your, your father talked about this. He did his whole, in the beginning of the book, he does like a whole review of the self-improvement literature going all the way back to the 19th century and, and then into the 20th century. And he said, in the 20th century, he had this, there's this shift. In the 19th century, a lot of the self-improvement work was very character-based. Like it was all about building up your character. But then in the 20th century, there was a shift to what he calls a personality ethic. Can you talk about the difference between those two? Absolutely. Yeah, this is kind of what gave root to the seven habits was this 200-year study of all the success literature, like you've mentioned, Brett. And and he found, you know, in the first 150 years of this study, the focus was on character, on principles, on things like, you know, fairness and integrity and courage and, you know, interdependence and, and trust and things like this. But then the last 50 years, he began to notice a discernible shift towards more things like techniques and, and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and skills based things, not necessarily bad, but kind of a shift away from character and more towards personality. And it's not that personality is bad. It's just that we don't want to separate the personality from the character roots. It's almost like an iceberg. And, you know, the personality is the tip of the iceberg. It matters enormously, but the greater mass of the iceberg is the character. And so the very first uh, subtitle of the seven habits, you know, the book came out, the seven habits of highly effective people. The first subtitle 
before the publishers had us change it to make it, you know, more uh, memorable. The first subtitle was Restoring the Character Ethic. And it was exactly what you just described, Brad. It was trying to say, let's get back to the foundational basics, the principles that are so vital to people everywhere. And, and, uh, you know, of fairness, of integrity, of balance, of courage, of, of, uh, of unity, these, these kind of principles. And, and as opposed to kind of just focusing on techniques and practices and things that help you get ahead, which again, aren't necessarily bad, but if they're severed from their character roots, could lose the foundation that is so critical for it. And that was the idea that kind of spawned the seven habits because each of these seven habits are fundamentally based upon principles that are enduring as opposed to to fads, to techniques, to practices that kind of would ebb and flow with changing times. And again, that's why seven habits are so enduring because it's based upon these principles. So let's dig into the seven habits so people can, for who haven't read the book and get a taste of what they'll find in the book. And also for people who have, it'd be a good refresher. So the first three habits are about winning private victories, about starting with, going from the inside out, like as you said. So the first habit is being proactive. What does that look like? What does that mean? Yes. Yeah. So um, let me just give, I'll, I'll just take what you just mentioned, Brett, and go a little deeper on the context. The first three habits kind of move a person from dependence to independence. And as you mentioned, my father called that the private victory. You go from dependence to independence. The second three habits, habits four, five, and six, move a person from independence to interdependence. So I'm independent, but now I try to say, can I work with others? So he calls that the public victory. And the last habit kind of sustains and renews all of them. So the foundational habit, as you mentioned, is habit one, be proactive. And the idea here is that each of us, we are responsible for our lives. And, you know, we can take responsibility for our lives, for our choices. We're, we're, we're influenced by circumstances. We're influenced by environment. We're inf- influenced by, you know, genetics. There's no question. But they, while they influence us, they don't determine us. The idea is that we can choose. We have the power. We're agents. We can choose our response to circumstances. We don't just have to be impulsive in between what happens to us and our response to it is a space. And in that space, we can choose our response based upon our values as opposed to just based upon circumstances. And so when we choose based upon our values, that's being proactive. When we just respond out of impulse, that's being reactive. And it's saying we can be proactive in our life. We can take responsibility for our life and we can be you know, we can be resourceful and take initiative and make things happen. And so this is really trying to give people a sense of a personal responsibility and an and opportunity to say, I'm in charge of my life. I can create the life I want. Yes, I'm influenced by all these things around me, but it's in my, my circle of influence, to use a metaphor he describes, to, to take responsibility. And, and that's the idea. And the whole idea of the circle of influence is this, is that there's a lot of things that happen to us in life that we can't control. You know, the weather, what's happening right now, you know, in the, with this global pandemic, you know, we can't control a lot of these things, but there are things that within the things that 
are influencing us, our circle of concern, if you will, all these things around us that concern us, there's us inside that circle of concern is a smaller circle of influence. These are things that we can do something about. I can't do anything about the weather, but I can do something about my attitude towards the weather, how I feel about it, how I respond to it. I can carry my own own weather with me. And when I focus on my circle of influence, instead of my circle of concern, I'm being proactive. And what will happen is if I continue to focus on my circle of influence, my circle of influence will grow and expand and enlarge. And, but if I focus on my circle of concern of, you know, my boss's weaknesses, you know, my spouse's faults, my kids, and, you know, and, and focus on all their, you know, everything outside of me, what happens is my circle of influence tends to wither and diminish and grow smaller while my circle of concern expands. And so by being proactive, focusing on what we can influence, then we grow that proactivity, we grow that influence. And, and we begin to ripple out. And that's, that's the idea. So, so, you know, be proactive means you are responsible. You are in charge of yourself, of your life. Yes, we're influenced by everything around us, but that, while it influences us, it does not determine us. We are proactive. We're agents to choose for ourselves. And that's the foundational habit because out of that comes all the other habits. Because once I'm responsible, now I can choose in a new and different way for everything else I'm doing in my life. So you mentioned that this is a, a principle, it's timeless, it's enduring. But within these principles, you're, as, you're, as you said earlier, your father provided very practical, actionable steps people can take to embody that principle. So what's something that someone can start doing today to live this habit of being proactive? Here's something you can do right away. Notice your language. And you know, anytime you're saying things like, I have to, or, you know, I'm required to do this. You know, I have to do this. I have to do that. You're, you're being, you're using reactive language. We don't have to do anything. We can choose to respond. Now we might realize that, Hey, if I don't do something like, like a, my daughter's in school right now in online school and she said, Oh, I hate this. I have to, you know, be on these, uh, zoom meetings every day and, 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 do all these things. I have to do it. And I say, you don't have to. He goes, yeah, I do. I have to. Because if I don't, I'll fail. I said, well, do you have to, or do you choose to? She goes, well, if I don't participate, I'll fail. Okay, great. So you choose to be on the call because you want to pass the class and you don't have to, you could choose not to. And then you would, you'd reap the natural consequences, which is you'd fail the class, but it's still a choice. You choose to be responsible. You choose to pass the class, but you don't, you don't have to do anything. So just that very simple thing. I have to, here's another one. You know, he makes, he makes me so mad when someone, you know, bothers you. He makes me so mad as if you have nothing to do about it. Is that a choice that you can choose to take offense that you could choose to become angered? You know, we don't have to do anything. So watch our language and use language of, I choose to, instead of, I have to. And, and, um, take responsibility. And it's something you can do immediately. And, and, and what we all realize is we're all pretty reactive, myself included. And, and, uh, we, you know, we, we're not perfect on this. It's very easy to fall into reactive stances and you see it in your language and the most basic things. And, uh, but I just learned from my dad, you know, you never 
have to do anything. You choose to. You're responsible. And that very simple thing, you might think that's a simple thing, but you start to become self-aware. I am responsible. I am a product of my choices, not my circumstances. And I can choose to do everything. And language is one little thing. So I say to each of us, watch our language and choose to instead of have to. And you'll be amazed at kind of the self-awareness that gives you. The second thing I'd give is what I just mentioned earlier. Focus on your circle of influence, not your circle of concern. And so when tough things happen, maybe at work and, and rather than focusing on all the problems with, you know, let's say your boss and how you can't say you can't trust your boss. Well, what if you focus on your circle of influence, which is your self-trust, your credibility, your performance, such that you gain more clout, more influence because you're doing so well that that compensates sometimes for even, you know, lesser relationship with another person. You know, if you focus on your circle of influence, that circle of influence will expand and, and you'll become more effective, more powerful versus kind of focusing on the weaknesses of other people, focusing on things you can't control. So that, you know, again, you become so aware and, and, and habit one is so much about self awareness so that we can choose our response based upon our values. All right. So the next habit is begin with the end in mind. So what does that look like? This is the habit of vision. If habit one is saying, you know, you are responsible, you are a programmer. Habit two is saying, so write the program. What do you want? What's your vision for yourself? What's the vision for your life? Who are you? What are you all about? What are you trying to accomplish? What is your end in mind for yourself? And so the idea of, of you know, one way of thinking about this is, is to, you know, create a personal mission statement. And maybe a way of doing a personal mission statement is to, you know, think it, you know, an 80th birthday party where you're turning 80 and you've got all your friends and your family and maybe neighbors and maybe work associates there. And you have people that are going to stand up and give a tribute, maybe one from your family and one from your neighborhood or community, one from your work. Maybe if you belong to a church, one from your church or what have you. What would you like them to say, each of them, about you as they celebrate you and your life on your 80th birthday? What would you hope that they would say about you, you know, the family member? What would you hope that they would say about you from work? What would they hope that they would say about you in your community or your church or in your, you know, whatever is important to you? And in a sense, that's kind of beginning with the end in mind for yourself, for your life. And it helps you think about what matters to you? What, what do you value? What's important? What is your mission? And so you can come up with, you might put it in writing, in words, a personal mission statement. That's just one application of how you would begin with the end in mind. You know, you could create a personal mission statement, but there's a whole lot of other ways that you can say, you know, what am I trying to achieve and accomplish? Anytime you take on a project, what's the end in mind? You know, you start a, a puzzle. Think of the puzzle. You know, let's say there's a thousand piece puzzle and you, you dump it out and you got the thousand pieces. In a sense, begin with the end in mind is seeing the picture on the box of the puzzle of what you're trying to put together, that picture and how important in putting together a puzzle is the picture. It's really important because it gives you a sense of what you're trying to do, 
what you're trying to do with these puzzle pieces, you're trying to create this picture. So in a sense, begin with the end in mind is the picture of the puzzle you're assembling of your life, of who you are, what you're about, what you're trying to do. And so it's really powerful because it's the, it's the, it's the habit of vision. Hey, Brett, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting, fun story on this. When I was a, just a young kid. Sure. Cause we grew up in our home with the, you know, my father first saw, taught the seven habits to us as kids <laughs> and there's nine of us kids. So, you know, we had a big family and, and I remember one time I was, I can't remember, maybe 12 or 13 years old. And, and uh, my dad took the whole family. I think maybe there were six or seven of us at the time up to uh, a big building. And, and uh, we went to the top of the building got on the very top on the roof because we were with an architect, got on the roof of the building. And then we looked down right next door to our, the building we were standing on. There was a big hole in the ground. And another building was about to be built in that hole. They were doing the foundation work. And the art, my, my dad had an architect with us and he was a, he pulled out these blueprints, you know, these blue pieces of paper, these blueprints. And he said, this, Next building, right now you only see a hole, but that building has already been built mentally. And, and, and he pulled out the blueprints. He says, look, here's the design of the building. Here's the foundation. Here's what it's going to look like. And he says, I've already built this building mentally. Now we're going to build it physically, but begin with the end in mind in a sense is the mental creation, which precedes the physical creation. And, and, you know, and I just remember that. So it's indelibly impressed in my mind as a young, you know, teenager that begin with the end in mind and seeing the, you know, the, the hole in the ground and seeing blueprints from this architect saying, I've already built this building mentally and on paper. Now we're going to do it physically. Then we went back about a year and a half later or whenever it was done. And we went back on that and stood on the same building and looked out and there was another building right next to it that we had seen the blueprint of a year and a half ago, and now there it is standing up. And I just remember saying, I get it. <laughs> Begin with the end in mind. You know, the mental pre- creation precedes the physical one. So we need to do the same for our lives is decide who we are, what we're about, and then try to, you know, carry that out. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. All right. So the, the final of the private victory habits, the third habit is put first things first. What does that look like? That's the carrying out of your plan, of your end in mind. And so in, in a sense, in habit two, begin with the end in mind, you are identifying what are the first things in my life? What are the most important things? You know, what are the values? What are the things I care about? My priorities. And habit three Put first things first is saying, okay, I've identified my priorities. Now live by them. If they're the first things, then put them first, not second or last. You know, put first things first, carry out your plan, you know, and so you manage your time based upon not just kind of what's urgent and what's in front of you, but what's important and what matters to you. Now, when something is both important and urgent, you're going to do that for sure. Because you have to, it's, it's, it's right upon you, it's pressing, it's urgent, and it's important. But what we want to avoid doing kind of in as we manage our time is 
avoid getting distracted by the things that are urgent, that are pressing, you know, but aren't necessarily important to us. And so that could be, you know, excessive, you know, just binge watching excessively, you know, a little binge watching might be good for you because it might relax you, but you know, you could go too far where it becomes excessive and, 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 you know, or a, a pressing, you know, phone call and, and all the emails that just come in and we can get distracted in our work and find ourselves just buried all day long doing emails or spending time on social media back and forth. You can get lost in this and that's kind of fun and it might be kind of pressing and proximate and urgent, but, but oftentimes it's not very important. What really is, you know, is critical to focus on are the things that are, are important and they may or may not be urgent, but importance is the most important. Those are the first things. So we learn to organize and execute our life around our priorities, around the first things that we identified. So, you know, habit three is the habit of productivity and of time management, of really life management, because we've kind of in habit two, begin with end in mind, we've said, here's what I'm all about. Here's what my life's all about. Now, habit three, I'm living it. So to use the computer metaphor, habit one, you are not a program, you're a programmer. So habit two, write the program. Habit three, execute the program, carry it out. What you've said is important to you, live it. You know, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because if you say that you value, you know, your family, and then though in habit three, you find yourself never spending any time with your family, putting work always ahead of family, and even other interests ahead of family, then you're, but you say the most important thing in your life is your family. You're not putting your first thing first. It's maybe second or third or fourth. And so this is just basically saying, be true to your values. Be true to the first things in your life. You know, put them first. If you say they're first, put them first. And, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road. When we teach this to kids, because we actually, Seven Habits has been taught to CEOs of companies, it's been taught to heads of state, and and uh, it's been taught to school superintendents, school principals, and to school children as young as kindergarten. And and when we teach them to, to, to school kids, you know, kindergartners and the like, here's what Habit 3 says. Rather than say, put first things first, here's what we say. Work first, then play. And it's basically saying, you know, get your work done, then go play. <laughs> and, and, um, it's just kind of a, just a simple way of saying, uh, you know, the course of least resistance is just to go play. And yeah, of course you want to play when you're a kid, but do your work first, then we'll go play. And that's kind of a way of saying put first things first. And so all these three habits, as you said earlier, they're all designed to help people gain independence or become a mature person. And that's something your father talked about, uh, about this idea of maturity. Because once you're mature, that allows you to move to these public victories and able to work with other people. And so that's a good transition to the habit four, which is think win-win. And this is kind of what you're, you're, you focused on with your writing with the speed of trust. So what does win-win look like? Yep. So you're right. Right now, we, you know, the first three habits make me independent. I'm, I'm a capable, responsible person. You know, I'm, I'm a real man in the art of manliness. I, you know, metaphor, right? I, and, and because I'm responsible and I'm capable. Now, 
Can I work well with others? Because most of life is interdependent. So the starting habit for that is habit four, think win-win. And this is a mindset. That's why my father used the word think win-win. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. And the way of thinking is mutual benefit. Win-win. I want Yes, I want to win. That's the first win. But I also want you to win too. That's the second win. And so it operates out of the idea that there is an abundance mentality as opposed to what you might call a scarcity mentality. So a scarcity mentality is the idea that there's only so much out there for people. there's, There's a pie. And if someone gets a piece of the pie, that means there's less for me. There's less pie available because someone else has got a piece. Another person gets a piece. Again, less pie for me because the pie is fixed. It's limited. And, you know, that's a scarcity mentality. So if someone get, you know, at work, if someone gets the credit, then that's less credit I'm getting, less praise I'm getting. You know, if, if someone gets paid well, then that's less pay for me. That's a scarcity mentality. An abundance mentality is saying there's plenty. There's enough for everyone. We can grow the pie. We can expand the pie. So if someone gets credit, great. That doesn't take away anything from me. I'm happy for them. And, and there could be enough for me too. And, and we can grow this. We can expand it. And so the idea that, yes, you can win and I can win too. We both can win versus if there's a winner, there's got to be a loser. And, and um, so it's a mindset of saying, if we're going to work interdependently, collaboratively, the best way to do that is by having a mindset of thinking win-win. I win, you win. We both win as a better way of working together. You know, you go into, you get married. You want that to be win-win. You know, it would be, can you imagine coming up and saying, hey, who's winning in your marriage? You know, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That's not, that's going to, that's going to end up being a lose-lose for both marriage partners. But, but, uh, you know, you want your partner, your spouse to win as well as yourself. You want, if you're, you're in a business partnership, the best partnerships are those in which there's mutual benefit to both parties. If you want that to be sustainable, if one party is winning, the other party is losing, over time, that's not going to work. And they'll either exit the partnership or, or go out of business, you know, the party that's, that's losing. It's just not sustainable. So if the reality is interdependent, you got to work together, win-win is the best and really most sustainable solution. So habit four is the mindset of thinking win-win. That doesn't mean you'll always achieve it because sometimes you may not. The circumstances might be such that you're not able to achieve win-win. And, you know, it might be that you can't get a win for you or maybe they can't get a win for them. So you're best off not working together. You know, so my father called that um, win-win or no deal. In other words, if we can't find a win-win, we're better off not doing the deal, not doing the relationship, not going into the partnership if we're not, if it's not mutual benefit. And so, so you can't always achieve it. You know, we're, my father was a realist on this and, but you strive to achieve it. You, it's your mindset to achieve it because it's a better approach to relationships and to life. And this now again is where we, when we move from independence to interdependence. So the best mindset is to think win-win, mutual benefit. It flows out of an abundance mentality. 
So you're thinking win-win. Part, part of the way you achieve win-win or try to achieve win-win is the, the fifth habit, which is seek first, understand, then be understood. So what, what do you think keeps people from understanding others? Like why is this, to me, this seems like to be one of the hardest habits to do. Brett, you're right. It's the single hardest habit. In fact, we have a, you know, we have a, a seven habits uh, feedback tool, a 360 a profile, a feedback instrument that you people, your listeners have probably seen in, at work. You know, you get a 360 feedback instrument around the seven habits. And the lowest rated habit is habit five. <laughs> Seek first to understand, then to be understood. It is difficult. And the reason it's the lowest rated habit is because most of us struggle with this because our instincts are just the opposite. We want to be understood. We want to give our side. We want to tell our story. We want to be heard. And we might think, hey, I'm right. So you need to hear this. And so our instincts are to lead out by saying, here's what I think. Here's, you know, here's my thought. Here's my belief. Here's my idea. And my dad is not saying, don't do that. He's just saying, don't start out with that. Do that second. Instead, he's saying, seek first to understand the other person, then you can try to be understood. In other words, there is a time and a place to say, here's my viewpoint on this. Here's how I see this. But his point is you will be more effective at expressing your viewpoint, at having influence with other people when you first take the time and the energy, the effort to try to understand the other person. Because when the other person feels understood, they become far more open to really listening to you and being influenced by you. When they don't feel understood by you, when they feel like you didn't really listen to them, then they're fighting for the equivalent of psychological air. You know, if we were to suck the air out of the rooms that we're in right now as we're doing this uh, this uh, recording, Brett, if, if there were no air available to either me or you, neither of us would care about what the other was saying. We'd be just... We'd be fighting for air, right? To stay alive. Well, what, you know, but now that we have air, we're not even thinking about it. So an unsatisfied need doesn't, excuse me, a satisfied need doesn't motivate. When we have air, we don't think about it. But if you, if we didn't have air, we'd be fighting for it. And the same thing is true of understanding another person. What oxygen is to the body, understanding is to the soul of the person. They want, people want to feel understood. It's a gift to understand another person that you give to them. So when you go into a relationship and said, and say, Hey, let me try to understand you first. Let me listen to you. And it's the deepest form of listening because it's empathic listening. Most people listen, not with the intent to truly understand another person. Rather, most people are listening with the intent to reply to the person. To respond. So, you know, they might be respectful, kind of waiting their turn, but they're kind of just formulating their reply and, and just kind of waiting for them to finish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. You got out what you wanted to say. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's how I see it. And the person that talked first doesn't really feel like you heard them, like you, they don't feel understood. But if you take the time to say, Hey, let me try to understand you first. Let me really listen to the point where you feel understood by me. So I'm going to kind of reflect back what I hear you saying. I'll reflect the feeling behind it and I'll try to capture the content and see if I, you know, help me to make sure I, I, I'm understanding you. And, and if I'm not, tell me what I'm missing. 
So I, cause my goal is to understand. And see, that takes courage to do that because you're a little bit vulnerable. That's why the first three habits, the private victory precedes this. That, that gives you the strength, the courage, the independence to say, I'm enough of a man, you know, to use the metaphor of this show that I can choose to listen to and truly understand another person, even if I see the world differently than that person, even if I disagree with them. Because understanding does not necessarily mean agreement. You might not agree. In fact, you might completely disagree. All understanding is saying is, I'm trying to understand you to your satisfaction, where you feel heard, listened to, and truly understood. And I, again, I may agree, I may disagree. That takes that it, it take the reason it's hard. It takes courage. It takes true independence. We have to be a little bit vulnerable. That's why we have to have strength to do this because we're a little bit vulnerable. That's why the private victory comes first. But also, it kind of goes against our instincts to try to want to be heard, to tell what we think. And again, my father's saying, don't, you know, deny that. Just don't lead with that. Have that be second, not first. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. When you go in that sequence, when when the person feels understood by you, they are so much more open to your influence and they'll listen to you better. You'll have more. When you say, you know, here's how I view it, and they feel like you paid the price to understand them. They listen far more carefully to you. They're more influenced by you. And I've seen this happen in personal relationships. You know, I do, if I do this well with my wife, if I really listen to where she feels I understand her, oh, she becomes far more open to what I think. When I don't do this, when I kind of just pretend to listen or just kind of wait my turn, I, I don't have anywhere near the influence. So it's in personal relationships. It's clearly in business. When there's understanding, you can come up with all kinds of solutions. When people don't understand each other, they have a hard time really achieving solutions. So you are right when you said, Brett, think win-win, habit four. The way to get to win-win is habit five by understanding first the interests of the other person to their satisfaction. Then you sharing your interest to your satisfaction, and that sets you up for habit six, which is which is synergize. which is synergize. Yeah, so so yeah, I think the synergize. This is a, a I think a, a, it's become a buzzword in, in corporate culture. It's been you know such a buzzword. It's been parodied, but I think that parody is like there's a misunderstanding of what your father meant by synergizing. What does your father mean by synergizing the seven habits? Here's what he means by synergize. So you know, habit six synergizes. So it's really those. Three habits working together. Think win-win, habit four. Habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. That's how you understand each other's differences. Habit six, synergize means you you are trying to create something that is bigger than the sum of its parts, where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So that means this. One plus one equals three or five or 10 or more. You're, you know, the whole is more than some of its parts. Compromise is where one plus one equals one and a half. You know, I gave, you gave. We didn't create something better. We had to just compromise. So one plus one equals one and a half. Sometimes compromise is all you can do. It might just be the reality. There's really low trust and the best you can do, like so often in government, compromise is kind of the best they can do. The idea of synergize is saying, 
what if we got creative? What if our mindset was think win-win? We want, I want to win. I want you to win too and vice versa. What if we both sought first to understand each other, then to be understood and we both did that and we both felt like we mutually understood each other? Then what are the possibilities in habit six of synergizing where we could come up with, come up with ideas and solutions that might be better than what either one of us might come up, you know, come up with on our own. And this is the whole idea that, that our differences can become our strengths. And we come up with solutions that we never could have come up with if just independently that we could do together creatively, you know, and, and so, you know, that's the wisdom of teams. It's, it's the idea of, of, uh, of really saying, look, let's, let's uh, create, let's be innovative, let's be creative. And, and let's, you see the world differently than I do. Great. Let's value those differences in habits four and habits five. Think win-win, seek first to understand, then to be understood, to create something better. Habit six, to synergize, to have one plus one equaling three or more. But you're right, Brett. When my father was first using this word, it was kind of a new word and a fresh word. And but over time, because it became a kind of a corporate word of synergies and in mergers and the like that often was seen it, it kind of got a negative connotation attached to it in some ways. But if, if the idea could be, this is innovation. This is creativity. This is coming up with new ideas and possibilities that are better that we could come up with together. It would be harder to come up with independently and by yourself only. All right. So the final habit is sharpen the saw. And this seems to be like a capstone habit that's supposed to help with all the habits. So what does your father mean by sharpen the saw? He's saying, look, if, if you were sawing down a tree with a big saw and you could try to work harder, try to saw faster, that might help. But maybe the smartest thing you could do would be to stop and take time to sharpen that saw. Because if the, if the saw is more sharp, you will saw that, that down that tree a lot faster. And that's the idea. Never be too busy sawing to take time to sharpen the saw. And so sharpen the saw kind of is a, becomes a metaphor for saying, renew yourself, you know, invest in yourself, renew your body, your heart, your mind, your spirit, renew yourself physically, you know, so that you're, you're exercising and you're, you're taking care of yourself physically, your body, renew your heart, your relationships, love and relationships and, you know, emotional renewal. Renew yourself mentally so you're learning and improving, getting better, and you're keeping your mind alert, clear, active, engaged. Renew yourself spiritually. The idea here is not necessarily religion, but rather, you know, meaning and purpose and contribution and creating value. And, you know, who are you? What are you all about? That's the, the spiritual dimension, the, the need for meaning and purpose. And so you're kind of, kind of trying to reinvest in yourself and to renew yourself and to, you know, to sharpen the saw in those four dimensions, your body, your heart, your mind, your spirit. And, and, and the, the very process of doing that makes you a sharper saw. So you're able to perform better, to do better. So rather than burning yourself out, you know, we, a lot of us suffer from burnout in our lives. And because, you know, we're just so busy and, and uh, we're just so wrung out by so many things. And, and uh, it's like the pounding surf, just one thing after another. And, you know, I've been there too. 
And the point is never be so busy sighing to take time to sharpen the saw. If you take time to renew yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you'll be more productive. You'll be more effective and you'll be energized rather than burnt out. And you'll have more capacity to do everything else better. So it kind of renews your ability to practice the other six habits and to go back trying to work well with other people, you know, starting with yourself, being independent, and then becoming effectively interdependent, working well with others. And then you renew your abilities, your capacity to do all of that. So that's kind of the, the capstone, exactly what you said, Brad, of the, the seventh habit, sharpen the saw, helps you do the other six on an ongoing basis. Well, Stephen, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the 30th anniversary edition of The Seven Habits and, and more about the work at Franklin Covey? Absolutely. So The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the 30th anniversary is coming out in May 2020. And you can go to Amazon or any bookstore. It will be everywhere on that. And the great thing about this 30th edition, by the way, is that there's some value-added pieces, even for the people that have already read The Seven Habits. If you like The Seven Habits before, you'll even like it more now. Let me tell you why. Because first, you know, The Seven Habits is in there exactly as it was before. Not one word of my father has been changed. But what we have done is we've added, at the end of each chapter, additional fresh insights to those different habits that my brother Sean wrote. And my brother Sean is the run that took my father's work and adapted it to teens, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens and Seven Habits of Happy Kids. And he's also done a lot of work with organizations and, you know, with his work on the four disciplines of execution, along with Chris McChesney and Jim Hewling. And so he has a real insight and he's going to bring fresh insights. And it's kind of also kind of interviews with my father and back, you know, behind the scenes insight from my father that my, my brother is going to add to this. So it's really additive to the seven habits for those that have already read it. For those that haven't, I think you'll find this is such a useful, practical framework of being effective in your life, you know, independently and then interdependently, you know, as a person, as a man, you know, in the art of manliness and, and, um, and, and to, to help you succeed. So you can go to the bookstore, you can go, you know, online, you can go to the Franklin Covey website. So just franklincovey.com. And, and you'll learn about the seven habits and, and kind of training programs and all kinds of different tools to help you learn more, go deeper into seven habits of highly effective people, which really is 30 years young. And, and, um, and just, I think it remains maybe, Brett, if I could be bold to say this, just kind of like a, um, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, called it an operating system of human effectiveness, of helping people just kind of understand how to be effective first personally and second with other people because it's based upon your character, these foundational principles that are so actionable. My father kind of has a gift of making it actionable and memorable to people. So hope our listeners are, you know, will find great value from this newly released 30th anniversary edition. Well, fantastic. Stephen M. R. Covey, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, Brad, and appreciate the great work that you do. My guest today was Stephen M. R. Covey. He is one of the sons of the late Stephen Covey, author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is out now with a 30th anniversary edition with new insights 
from the kids of Stephen Covey. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about the seven habits at franklincovey.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash seven habits, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. In fact, we got a whole series about the seven habits of highly effective people. Go check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the app, Android or iOS, and you start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.